One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You've downloaded NewsHour Extra's podcast and it's an unusual one this week. We have been travelling far and wide and Damien Quinn, guest producer with great expertise in a particular country, is here to tell me all about it. Where have we been? We've been to Syria and Lebanon, but mostly Syria. And tell us uh, why, you know, you, you, you've been working on this for a long time. It's obviously a big project. Why did you want to do this programme? This was my first time back in Syria in six years. So the last time I was there was 2010, before the uprising started. So this was our first time actually back in the country. Um, to, get, to Basically to, to get a sense of what's going on. And what we found was that certainly in Damascus, the government, the people who support the government are very confident. They feel they're in control in those areas of the country they control. And they are confident that with time, this is what they say, they will retake the rest of the country. Now, I should explain that although you've not been back for six years, you were there before all the trouble began. Uh, but, you know, you have followed it probably pretty much 18 hours every day ever since and, and, and are extraordinarily well informed about what's going on. And we were able to use your contacts to get access to people in Syria, but also in the opposition, because we went to Beirut too. That's right. We tried to contact some people who, let's say, are critical of the government in Damascus. And what was noticeable was that basically most of those people didn't want to meet us. That's how that's how much grip the government's got. And, you know, how worried, you know, even mildly critical voices are of, of meeting with us, not even doing necessarily an interview on the record, but just meeting with us. And it was quite difficult, even in Beirut, this is out of Syria, in Lebanon, getting people to talk to us. A lot of people didn't want to talk to us. They feel their situation in Lebanon is quite precarious. Um, we did manage to get a few, but it but it was it was a stretch. It was, no, a, it was struggle. a it was a struggle because to be quite blunt about it, people are afraid that the long arm of the Syrian state extends to Beirut, and that if they go public, being critical of the government, bad things could happen to them. I mean, that's the truth of it. Exactly, and you know there are also people who still got family members who maybe you know are living in Lebanon but go back to Syria, and you know they don't want to go public, go on the record, being seen as critical of the Syrian government. Well, just to explain, as I will, no doubt. Well, just to explain, as I will, in the course of the programme, this attempt was to hear both sides of the story, the government side and the opposition side, to get some understanding of where they stand now. And so let's uh, let's hear the programme, hear the podcast. This is NewsHour Extra in Syria. So we begin in Damascus, and I'm now at the University of Damascus with three people who can help us understand the way this conflict looks from here, from this city. And they are Ziad Haider, a journalist in Damascus who's worked with many newspapers over the years, such as the Los Angeles Times. And who who are you with now? A Safir newspaper, which is based in Beirut. It's a pan-Arab newspaper. Right. And we've got uh, Maria Sade, who was an MP here in Damascus, and you come from the uh, Syrian Christian community, and you're an architect in, in Syria? Yes, but I'm not uh, representing in the parliament uh, the Christian community. Uh, in our constitution, we represent a region, not a religion. No, take the point. But nonetheless, there is a, a substantial Christian community in Syria? Before the war, it was less than 10%. It's around 8%. But today, we don't know exactly. 
Yeah. And we also have Fares Shahabi, who is a, a member of parliament. You're chairman of the Syrian Federation of the industry. Chambers of Industry. Yeah. And I should say in 2011, you were yeah. put on the EU sanctions yeah. list. And that was for providing economic support to the regime. Yeah. Yeah. And you appealed it. And yeah. then that was turned down. Because, the, uh, like we were told, it's political. It's based on no evidence. Uh, they don't even stick to the judicial system itself in the EU. So basically, I stopped all the appeals and I stopped everything. I, I went through the process for four years and then I stopped. It's hopeless. Okay. Now, can you? You're all sitting here in Damascus, and I think it's probably fair to say that you think the Western press does not represent what's happening in your country correctly. So let me just give you all the chance to start by saying what you think the Western journalists, the Western societies get wrong about the conflict in Syria. Why don't I start with you, Ziad Haider? I think they looked at the conflict from the beginning in the context of the what's so-called Arab Spring, similar to what happened in Egypt, to in Tunisia, in a way to Libya. But Syria is a more complicated country. It is not just about youth asking for, you know, liberalism or democracy. Syria is in the middle of the Middle East. It has many ethnicities, many sectarian groups, and it is part of a very large conflict with Israel. And in this context, no one was ready to see how complicated the issue of Syria would be in comparison with Egypt or with Tunisia or with Libya. Okay, can I put the same question to you, Fares Shahabi, and sort of not just the media coverage, but I think you interact probably with Western politicians when they come over here. What do you think they generally misunderstand? Uh, Many things. Uh, They're very biased, they're very prejudiced. They have preset ideas about the conflict, about what really happened here from the beginning. We lived through it day by day. We know exactly what happened from day one. I mean, I don't think a democratic revolution starts from mosques. I mean, what mosques has to do with democracy and elections. And a democratic revolution does not target the infrastructure of a country, does not target factories, does not uh, call for forceful protest or uh, closures by force. These are things that we witnessed in the early days in 2011. And when we turn on CNN or BBC or or any Western media corporation, we do not see on TV. But but, but the the truth is, at the beginning, there were pro-democracy demonstrations on the streets. Look, these demonstrations on the street, I'm talking from the perspective of Aleppo, the city I lived uh, most of the time in during this period. What we see after the Friday prayer, we see some few people that they're not from Aleppo, demonstrating what do they have to do with mosques to begin with. A real democratic movement starts from universities. It has to be intellectual. It has to have an idea. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Part of it at the beginning was that. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was all from the mosques. This is what we witnessed from the beginning. And Maria Sadeh... Before it turned into terrorism and bearing arms. Maria Sadeh, I can see you nodding. No, just let me add something after what Faris said. Because as an architect, I have also a worker that we have uh, of construction. So for one hour demonstration, they got the same price they get in one day work. So you can believe that how many person they go for a demonstration. But I mean, again, let let, let me just push back on that and, and say, you know, you can't just say they were all paid. I mean, there was a demand, for, demand. for change. You were trying to say something. Yes, I, w- I was telling you something, that the demand for change is a popular demand. It's for everybody's demand. No one is against change for the better. 
But we want it to be gradual. We want it to be peaceful. We want it to be to preserve the country, to preserve the army, to preserve the institutions that we live uh, through, and to preserve really the demographic identity of the country. What we have seen since the early days of 2011 is everything but that. We've seen force. If you disagree with them, if you tell them this is not the way to do it, don't use mosques. Let's talk about it. Uh, what do you want? What are your demands? Immediately, immediately, they tell you you are a traitor. When you say they, you mean... The, the, the opposition. The opposition the, who, who turned out to be now, most of them, turn out to be now Nusra, Al-Qaeda. They used to be demonstrators. Immediately, they used to say, everything you own will be ours. You should not live here. You're not a real Muslim. All of this. We've seen this since the early early days of 2011. Ziad Haider. Uh, yes, I want to, I think just to be fair, I think many of the youth were misled by the idea of, a, of an Arab Spring, even in Syria. And maybe many of them found themselves that going out of the mosque where the most of the gathering is happening is the best way to demonstrate a large number of people. Although there was never really a a huge number or a, qu- a huge quantity of people demonstrating. And that we saw with our own eyes because I lived in Damascus at these terms. But again, if we want to go back to March 2011 and to April 2011, most of the areas that have actually tried to demonstrate an uprising, a sort of an uprising against the government, were areas that we have a relation with in terms of when it comes to the Islamic Brotherhood. And these areas were the areas were in the 1980s had the real battle with the government when it comes to Islamic Brotherhood conflict. So in the end, the essence of this movement, it always looked from the beginning as it has some religious background. Now the problem with that, and I think we discussed this before, is that it was in the early days of March 2011, the outsiders began to move in, speaking live from Doha Mosque just 12 days after this all started about the necessity of, of toppling the Assad family Alawite rule of Syria. Now, what sort of message does this actually give you? Even if you are a supporter of democracy, this message is coming from a sheikh in Doha where there is no sense of any rule of democracy and it is targeting a sectarian concept. So just to get more on your sort of perspective on all of this. Would I be right in saying, I mean, I think I'm right in saying, Ziad Haider, you would describe yourself as a secularist. I am, definitely. And what about the other two of you? Of course. For sure. Of course. (laughs) And you think that the West has misunderstood the conflict because you are up against, you think, religious extremists, not pro-democracy activists. Please, it's not about misunderstanding. It's about they act to put us apart. So as a parliamentarian, we didn't get a visa for two and three times because they don't want us to be assisting and presenting on the international table to have the talk and to pass the voice of the Syrian society and the Syrian people and to reflect the reality from the ground. So this is the democracy of the West. It seems to me that many people listening to this outside of Syria will think that your version misses out something important, which is that the government here was repressive before 2011, remains repressive, and is brutal. And, you know, we all know people have been tortured, people have been detained, people have been disappeared. Mm -hmm. And that has to be part of the picture. You have to acknowledge that. Can I, can I answer this? Okay, good question. Do you remember what happened when there were uh, terrorists in France? Yeah. When the whole army, the French army, went on the streets? 
Remember the two brothers in Boston? Two, only two. What happened in the States? Two, only. In my city, just blocks away from my house, there are six to 8,000 Al-Qaeda fighters. What do you want me to tell my army? Just act like what Western countries do. How can you allow yourself to go thousands of miles away to kick Al-Qaeda's butt somewhere in the world and you don't expect me to stand by my army to liberate my city from Al-Qaeda? So our army, the one who is responsible to protect the people and the society, this is the normal action from the legal army. Come on, 17,000 people killed in detention centres. Who said that? Amnesty International. Based on what? Well, Amnesty do have a reputation for careful research. Really? When when you hear figures such as those Amnesty ones, and you immediately say, well, is it true, is it true? I mean, you surely don't doubt that the government here is a tough government. I mean, it always has been, under the father and the son. And we meet people in Western Europe who've now come to the West who have pretty terrible stories of what happened in some of the detention centres here. I mean, do you just say they're all lying or can that I it's answer, exaggerated or, or what? Can I answer? Do you think, do you think whatever that happens in this uh, detention center here, do you think they are more violent than Guantanamo? More violent than uh, any of these secret uh, prisons that NATO countries have? When you deal with Al-Qaeda or Islamic Brotherhood, you have to be tough. There's no other solution. For sure. It's to protect the state. We face today the international war to attack the factor of the state under the name of terrorist organizations. Certainly, it is a tough government. Speaking as a reporter, I know that there are many difficulties to be as being a journalist in Syria. But at the same level, we have the liberty to dress the way we want. We have the liberty to eat what we want. There is a law in the country. It might not affect everyone when it comes to the you know powerful people, but when it comes to normal civilians, there is a law and it's effective. What do <coughs> Syrians have as an alternative now? Who are the ones that actually are reflecting themselves as the other alternative to the Syrian government that exists now? Who are they? They're either supported by Qatar or Saudi Arabia or Turkey, representatives of the Islamic Brotherhood, or even more extremist groups. Where are the liberals in the opposition? Where are the ones that can actually give Syrians, who are on the other side, who hate the government, for example, a a good example? And that's at the heart of this, really, and the whole of the American policy here, to try and find liberals it can work with. How how many liberals do you think there are here? Well, can I say, say one thing? I had friends from the opposition here, that at one stage I thought if these people would run for parliament, I would elect them without questioning myself. But many of these people, who funnily enough, for example, are Christians, some of them are Christians, they are supporting al-Nusra now. They mediated between al-Nusra and other rebel groups in the northern part of Syria. Nusra is the al-Qaeda-affiliated group. Exactly. And to me, this is, this is about the future of Syria. This is not a personal decision that you take. This is about the future of Syria. Look, I would like to add one thing. If you search the whole country, you cannot find one square meter, not one town, not one village, not one neighborhood, one square meter where you can have the opposition having a democratic civil rule in it. Not one square meter. They're all Islamists. All. Believe me, that's why we stand with our government. You're saying in the opposition-held areas? Yes. They all grow beards, shave the mustache. They all practice Wahhabism. They all affiliate themselves with Al-Qaeda and its sisters and branches. That's why we're against them. 
today there is no real opposition in the political level because what we called opposition, it's a fabricated opposition from the West. So we couldn't deal today with a national opposition as a holder of the national vision for the state. Ziad, Ziad Haider, would you go that far that the opposition that, you know, are, are in from time to time London and Istanbul and other places that they've sort of sold out and no longer can be considered true Syrians capable of representing people? I think it would be very interesting if one day will come where there is a liberal, you know, democratic election in Syria. If these people try, you know, to candidate themselves in these elections, I'd be, uh, it would be very interesting to see how many votes they would get. That's what we want. They are afraid of it, but that's what we want. Let, let me ask you about uh, President Assad. I mean, you will know that the major leaders of the West have said that they simply cannot see a solution in which he is, which he is part of, that for things to move forward here in Syria, if he went, it would unlock a lot of opportunities. I mean, can you see the logic of that? Okay, look, uh, we've seen examples. We've seen Saddam go. First of all, there's no comparison between the two, but we've seen Saddam go. What happened to Iraq? The Iraq is still this day. The terrorism in Iraq have, uh, has grown, not diminished. We've seen what happened in Libya. We've seen Somalia. You see, these hypocrites in the West, they demonize the person because they, they disagree with him. It's up to us whether he stays or leaves. We decide. The ballot boxes this, uh, decide. I think, again, like Dr. Faris is saying, even if you want to go a bit forward, you know, just draw a horizon of the future, if there is a possibility to think of a unified Syria, of a stable Syria, of a Syria that has aspirations for the future, it is difficult to think of that Syria without thinking of him in power because you need the man who stood for six years in this war on his foot fighting. You need that same man to take the country into stability. But, I mean, how can you say that when the, you say he is the man who can unify Syria? And yet his air force has dropped bombs on Syrian civilians. I mean, you all know that. So if you were unlucky enough to be in the wrong place and at the receiving end of that, you can't see him as a unifying figure, can you? When the crisis started, I thought in that time that I have to do something because I don't want to Syria to be another Iraq. And when I saw Saddam Hussein, something hurt me because it's not attacking Saddam Hussein or the Iraqi people, but the sovereignty of all leaders, Arab leaders and uh, Arab people. So for me, the sovereignty of my state, that's mean also the president Bashar al-Assad, the symbol for the sovereignty of Syria. But after five years of four, he can keep us resisting till now. And because of him, I think we are strong as a people and as a Syrian army. But just try and respond to my point about the people who have been on the wrong end of him, for whatever reason, if they're a civilian in eastern Aleppo, if they're someone who's fled to London. How can they see it the way you see it? That's what I'm trying look, to get at. Look, look, the thing is, when these terrorists took people human shields, what do you do? It's the same thing as a plane full of hostages. You negotiate with the hostage takers, with the terrorists, you tell them, leave, 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 they don't leave, they don't leave. Then you have to take military action. You have to take some action to liberate no, the rest that. of I the hostages. I do get that. But what I'm asking you to do is make your pitch for Assad. Make your pitch look, to Assad, look, to, to a, young, a young guy in, or a woman in London who's left Syria and is, and is they're very opposed to Assad. Tell me what you I should say to them. Stop supporting terror groups and come back and participate in the parliamentarian and presidential that the government here agreed to this process 
And then if you want to topple him, topple him through the ballot boxes, not through the use of Al-Qaeda. But still, Owen, I think this is another element that we have to put in mind. The Syrian population is not united. There are people that will be opposition, definitely. There are people who think, uh, no, we don't want him for president. But that doesn't mean that he couldn't win. You're likely to see these differences and the, between the uh, population. But one point you're all making, I think, is that after five, six years of war, given his role in prosecuting the government side of it, I mean, he's not going to go anywhere. Look, 2014, there was an election, right? They said the time they said that the overwhelming majority of those people Syrians in Lebanon escaped from Assad's brutality guess what everybody went on the streets and went to the embassy to elect him and everybody was shocked how can these people who claim that they ran away from Syria from the suppression and from whatever how can they go to the embassy in another country and elect the same guy that they accused of so basically it's a democratic process If they really have candidates, we haven't seen their candidates so far. We haven't seen their programs. We haven't seen their democratic rule that they call for. Okay, you run areas in the country. Show us an example. Make us believe that we are mistaken. You haven't shown us any example. So unless you do that, it's your problem, not our problem. Right. I've got one last area I want to ask you about. Uh, Without Russian support, what would have happened? Because just before that... I mean, a few weeks before the Russians intervened, the president went on telly and said, we are in real trouble here. Don't forget that we face an international war. It's a proxy war, but behind this proxy war, there is many states, and head of them is the United States. So it's uh, the interest of many states. It's a geopolitic. So, Faris, if I said you're becoming a Russian colony, you'd uh, come back quite hard. There are, there are now fewer Russian soldiers in Syria than there are American soldiers in, in Turkey or in Japan, or in Saudi, or in Qatar, or anywhere where there are American bases, but you don't call them colonies. And the Russians came here in September 2015. We were able to stand four years by ourselves against the coalition of international terrorism backed or allied somehow with NATO countries and the most powerful Gulf state countries. How could you stand for four years if the people are against the president? And also don't forget the sanctions which attack the Syrian people and the Syrian economy, which is another kind of terrorism, because the states who start with these sanctions, they support the terrorist organization and they attack the Syrian people at the same time. And do you see an end to this now, the three of you? I mean, you've been through six years of it. Do you think it is in its final stages, this conflict? We hope so. Uh, there's, a, there's a huge fight now against terrorism, now in Aleppo, now the Golani himself himself is running the show, uh, ordering around. The, the, the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda in Iraq guy, Nusra yeah, Front. Yeah, he used to be, uh, used to be uh, with uh, Zarqawi in Iraq, and now uh, he's the Nusra head, he, he's the, the lieutenant of Zawahiri. So he's running the show. I don't think the terrorism uh, will win in this country. I think we need more time because uh, there is no uh, no agreement between the two heads uh, who generate the two, uh, superpowers. The, the two superpowers exactly who generate the war the international war today because it's not about Syria it's about many things geopolitical uh, points in the world So until the US and Russia are in, are in agreement you think it goes on Not only that not only they have to be in agreement the servants of the US the Saudis and Qataris and Turkey they have to really obey the master the American master 
They don't have to really put sticks in the wheel. I think the possibility of recontrolling Aleppo by the Syrian army would be a good turning point in the conflict. But at the same level, this conflict has many layers. And to see the end, uh, the the unfolding of all these layers is going to take some time. There are many countries involved on both sides, and there are many interests involved on both sides. And to see, you know, uh, the sort of agreement that could put everyone's, you know, mind, to cool everyone's mind, I think it's going to be some time before that. You're listening to News Hour Extra with Owen Bennett-Jones and a programme in two halves this week because having had that discussion in Damascus, we've now moved to the Lebanese capital, Beirut, to get the views of some of those who are critical of the Syrian government and also a Lebanese political commentator here. We have Basil Salouk, lecturer in politics at the Lebanese American University who has studied power sharing and reconciliation processes which may come into play whenever this Syrian conflict eventually moves into a reconciliation phase. We have Yara Bada, who works at the Syrian Centre for Media and Freedom of Expression and is a working journalist, cultural journalist. And she was arrested by the Syrian regime and her husband imprisoned, and he was released just last year, so they know all about the limits to free speech in Syria. And we have Khaled Elektia, a Syrian journalist and writer who's living here in Beirut, or stuck here in Beirut, uh, as you said earlier. So in the first half of the programme, we heard those expressions of support for the Syrian government and President Assad. Uh, But as we can hear now, many international leaders see it very differently. There is no military solution. Many groups have killed many innocents, none more so than the government of Syria. Just when we think it, it cannot get any worse, the power of Depravity sinks lower. Assad will leave power. It's not a question of if, but when. I would have a very clear message for President Assad, which is it is time for him to go. The people of Syria deserve a government that respects their dignity, protects their rights, and lives up to their aspirations. Assad is standing in their way. For the sake of the Syrian people, The time has come for him to step aside and leave this transition to the Syrians themselves. And that is what we will continue to work to achieve. Well, let's get a sense now of how these uh, people in Beirut are thinking about these issues and the government and President Assad. Let's start with you, Yara Bada. We've got uh, the government saying its main argument now that it is confronting violent jihadists who want to create an Islamic state in Syria, and therefore their fight is entirely justified. If you want to fight jihadists or radical people, maybe you need to think beyond military techniques, which in a high percent leads a country to the situation it is now. So maybe, maybe we need to think in, a, in another way to release some of the peaceful civilians activists, uh, lawyers and journalists who are in jail since 2011 now. So you're saying if the government released some of those people it's currently detaining, detaining for just basically opposing the government or being critical of the government, how would that help? I'm not saying only this. I'm just saying maybe we need to think about another way to fight jihadists 
more than just destroy everything in the country. How that would help? Maybe it will help to find a space that Syrians, not only military groups from both sides fighting, like Syrians talking. Khaled Alekhtia, I mean, the experience of Iraq and other places where Islamic State have uh, got a footprint is that you have to confront them with force. Is that not right? Well, if you put it in the question like that, apparently the answer would be yes. The thing is, maybe we should think a little bit out of the box and if the regime is saying that they are fighting the Islamists, I mean, what they were doing like in 2011 when there was no ISIS at that time, who's they were fighting at that time then? Well, yes, I mean, I, I sort of hear that argument that there are lots of things that the government could be accused of, like not opening up at the beginning and offering more reform and fighting the Free Syrian Army before it fought Islamic State. But against that, you can say we are where we are. And now isn't the choice between this oppressive regime and violent jihadists. Now we are living the consequences of a different argument, a different dilemma. And we found out, like, actually, this is just a tiny part of a bigger system that we need to topple. And this is not only the responsibility of the Syrian. Now everybody is involved. And I think this question, like, cannot find an answer by an exiled uh, person uh, in Beirut. Basil Salouk, you, you study power sharing and reconciliation. Can you see a way ahead? Because, I mean, the government now presents it as a choice between them and jihadis. I mean, that's their line. Is that wrong? Can you see a third way? At this stage, no, actually. Uh, I think the tragedy of Syria is what started as peaceful demands, not, not for regime change, but for reforms, actually, during the Arab Spring, turned into this violent conflict. And I think there are two things that have sort of torpedoed Syria. The first is the securitization of sectarian identities. But once you do that, then it becomes very difficult to reverse the process. The second is the sectarianization of geopolitical battles, which started with the 2003 uh, U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. These two things uh, unleashed the kind of forces in Syria that have created the situation. But it's the latter dynamic, the sectarianization of geopolitical battles, which allowed for the emergence of radical Salafi jihadism in Syria. And at this stage, I think the Syrian people today are like the Lebanese during the civil war. Uh, they will not decide when the war will end. This is high politics among regional and international actors. Well, I must say it's a view you hear very often in Damascus, that this will only end when the United States and Russia agree it should end and agree a settlement. Not just that, I think. I think there is no Arab state system anymore. We live in a Middle East state system. And some of the key players in this conflict in Syria are regional players, whether it's the Iranians, the Turks, the Saudis, and so on. And I think one of the complicating factors about this conflict is that no one international actor can drive all of the other regional actors with them. They don't share a common agenda. Let, let me just put to you, Yara, or Khaled, either of you can pick up on this, that you know, that's one of the issues the opposition faces, is there are now so many foreign powers with proxy forces in Syria. You know, the government talks about over 80 different nationalities fighting against it, and no doubt they've recruited some various nationalities of their own to fight with the government. So it's become a proxy battle for lots of important states, and that really has hijacked 
what the opposition was trying to do at the beginning. This situation, it's not, not just a war. It's seven million people lost their houses. It's half a million need uh, extra hand and, and, and leg. How I would for a minute think to choose this one who is responsible for finding myself in this situation. It's not a personal issue, it's a country. I don't think that the problem that we are tackling right here in the Middle East is only like a Middle Eastern problem. It's like the problem of everybody who wants to do something or to have a slice of this Middle East. And that's not like saying like the people here has uh, no word to say. But at the same time, when we are squeezing people to the corner and we want an answer from them at this very moment and we are asking the people who are trying to organize uh, demonstrations in the street and get away from getting in prison or killed and like talking to the media at the same time and starting NGOs and helping with the with the field hospitals we are trying to also to ask him this kind of question what should we do it's like tackling the f word the future and I think like the second part of the war will be like the reconstruction when people like will not be able to get back where they live. So if we think that by having a ceasefire that the war has ended in Syria, I think I'll be big, uh, making a big mistake. OK, we will talk more about the future just as we get towards the end of the programme. But right now, I just wanted to hear from someone inside Syria who is opposing the government because, of course, many, many people have left the country, but some of those who oppose the government are still there and living in particular in East Aleppo. So Wissam Zaka is one of those. Now, the government recently offered uh, people in East Aleppo safe passage out, but reports suggest no one took the offer up. I asked Wissam Zaka whether that was because the rebel fighters don't want civilians to leave Eastern Aleppo. Last time when we were offered to go out, I went to some exit which is near my place, and there was fighting at that time from both sides. Right, so you just stayed at home, as probably many others did as well. Can you tell us about the nature of the fighters in East Aleppo now? I mean, are most of them from the Nusra Front? To my knowledge, few are from Nusra. Most people who joined it have already uh, maybe passed away, now fighting. And the nature of people here like, doesn't go that well with uh, the mentality there. They are somehow uh, strict. I mean, that's what I'm trying to get at, really. The government says that virtually all the fighters in eastern Aleppo are motivated by violent jihad or whether most are motivated by trying to establish, you know, liberal democracy in Syria. Which do you think it is? I guess it's not uh, these two choices. Most of them are fighting just to get free. That's it. Just to get free, not to be under the control of the regime again. They don't care what will happen like that much in the future, what all like they care about that no one like Bashar Assad would be control again or any dictatorship would be in control again. They are fighting because they saw people dying, people who asked for freedom were killed, and they thought that, okay, we should fight this criminal and get rid of him. And just uh, in general terms, just explain why you are so opposed to the government, that really you've put your life on the line. I mean, you've been living in East Aleppo for years now. Tell us about your, your thinking on that. I've been living in Aleppo now for one year and a half. I came back. I was abroad. I had to run away from the country because I was asked to fight with the regime in the regime's army to kill my own people. I went to work in Turkey to teach at the university there. Then I found out that I have to come back. Like here students need teachers. 
So I came back. Seeking freedom is something very in nature, let's say. And I have the right to be free in my homeland. This is what I have to do. I, I can't stand the idea that I will run away. That was Wissam Zaka, who is living in eastern Aleppo. He's been there for one and a half years, he says. As a teacher, he decided to go back to teach there because he thought people needed uh, the education and he thought it was his duty to go back and uh, do his professional work there rather than in Turkey, where he had been before. Now, you were listening to that. And let me start with you, Khaled Alekhtia. What do you make of what he said there about the reasons people are fighting. It seems that they know what they're against, the way he tells it, more than they know what they're for. Yeah, maybe that was um, a big problem of Syrians, like, you know, in the opposition. We know exactly what we are against, but we don't really know exactly what we want at that time. But that, it's also a complicated problem, like, dated back to the time of the regime where we're, Syria were deserted. Intellectuals were being hunted down, like, in several ways, and and uh, the civil society was almost dead. I mean, it was just like um, a title on a in a book or something. Yeah, maybe now I cannot put myself in the guy's shoes like you've been talking to in Eastern Aleppo because I believe the uh, situation is there is more horrible than we imagine. And um, maybe even like in this kind of circumstances, maybe it's not fair enough to ask people to try to come up with uh, something that makes sense from the, with living in a situation that doesn't make sense at, at all. Yeah, they're just living under appalling pressure and, yeah. Well, I think I think it's good to know what you don't want to have. I think people knew what they want to have. It was a common thing with so-called Arabic Spring. Most people didn't want dictatorships. They want freedom. They want liberty. They want to be equal in front of law. So what was missing, mostly I think it was the mechanism. How we can find a system for Syria with all what it is unique for, work for it, um, and bring this equality, this democracy, this respect for, for the human being. I don't think it's fair to judge by now because I think even Europe, when they left the Dark Ages, they took their time. They had Columbus and America. They had the printer, and so they had a lot of books to get used from. And what we had, it was just the young people and social media. So it was good, but maybe not enough. So maybe we are going to take more time. But I think that's good. Just to decide maybe this is good, but not for you. That's what I mean. Like a lot of people say, even in Syria, what we need is just to feel safe no matter what. But most of the time, this feeling of safety could be completely a fake safe. And that's why people could just like be very so much afraid of freedom because it's out of the rules they get used to. Basil Saluk, you've been listening to all this, and just with your sort of academic hat on, can I ask you to sort of unpack what we're hearing? Because we're hearing about a lack of clear objectives, a lack of clear mechanisms, and, you know, I think a lot of uncertainty, if I can say that, uh, with our two guests here as to what's happened, really, and what's going to happen. What's your analysis? Well, look, I think... The main problem in the Arab world is that you've had, in the post-independence period, you've had these uh, homogenizing, unitary, authoritarian uh, states. And Lebanon is an exception because it is the only country that had a very weak state and continues to have one. But what the uprisings did is they were a rebellion against the contract that was struck in the 60s and 70s and even before between regimes and populations. And 
it was a rebellion against a contract that was no longer feasible because of a socioeconomic crisis. I truly believe the case of Tunisia is driven by economic factors, same Egypt. The rest is really the permeability of the Arab state system. As one political science once put it, the Arab state system is like an echo chamber, something that happens at one end will reverberate. Now, the problem for Syria is Syria is a very complicated country from its inception. And it would be wrong to suggest that sectarianism was and has always been the main marker of political identity. Uh, in fact, it's not. If you study uh, the process of state formation in Syria, uh, sectarianism has always been one among many other variables. There's regionalism, there's class, there are other variables. But all that in the, is in the past because once this unitary authoritarian state collapsed, something has to come in and fill the vacuum. And as I said, from a political science perspective, once violence assumes uh, sectarian dimensions, then it becomes very difficult to undo this. And so when the violence will end, which I think will have more to do with geopolitical conditions and fatigue among local actors, and, and by the way, we are talking about this now, but we are at a moment where nobody knows where this, how long the Syrian conflict will go and where will it go because it seems there is a race against time to try and destroy, retake all of Aleppo and so on. So, so we're theorizing now. But once this moment arrives, I would find it very difficult to think that a unitary Syria will be put back together. Because the minute you the minute you sectarianize these identities, it, it becomes tough. So so let me just because you asked me to speak to you as a political scientist. I mean, the evidence is clear in political science. Once violence assumes sectarian or ethnic dimensions, and this is not because of ancient hatreds; these are all very current and modern issues then you have to go the power-sharing route, the consociation route, which means you have to institutionalize sectarian, ethnic, tribal identities into the regime. In other words, Syria will look like Lebanon. Syria will look like Iraq. Libya will look like Lebanon. Yemen will look like Lebanon. And this is not because of something primordial about the peoples of the region, but it's just the consequences of institutional state collapse and the way in which the geopolitics of the region played itself in these local conflicts. That's very, very interesting. And when you say looks like Lebanon, you mean sharing power on the basis of religious identity, really? Some kind of identity. I mean, depending which one is the most powerful one. It could be sectarian, it could be regional, it could be tribal, it could be ethnic. And again, this has nothing to do with these so-called journalists like to talk about these ancient hatreds. Even Obama talked about it, which is all false. I mean, these are very contemporary issues. So, so, so let's just put that to our other contributors here. You know, we're trying to look ahead now, towards just reaching towards the end of the programme, looking ahead at the situation as it uh, will unfold. So, I mean, first of all, can I ask you, I mean, we're hearing about power sharing there, but can either of you see any circumstances in which President Assad is not in charge. Because, I mean, in Damascus, they can't see it. I can tell you that. Everyone assumes he's there for the long term now. Yeah, like, I think sometimes maybe we're going to have election with his son. That could be very soon. You think his son will take over? You just need to change the constitution again. And his son is going to become 18 soon. 
So that will be fine. Like any kingdom, you know, like that's happened in history. You think that will happen? Look, the good thing with this government, to be honest now, serious, like not joking, they still fight for the power over all Syria. I don't understand the meaning of power in their consideration with all Russian and Iranian invention of the country. Like you have a military area, you are not allowed to check what's entered and goes out from it in your country, belong to another country. So I don't understand the meaning of the power, but they still fight for the whole Syria. And this is different from some oppositions who talk about areas in Syria. So anyway, can we think about a future without al-Assad? I think it's depending on are you thinking of a future without the government or the regime. It's how you decide to put the question, you are going to have an answer. What's that distinction? Explain that to me. If you are asking, like, can we think about a future without the regime, I would say probably no. But that's different from the question you asked. Like to thank you for asking about the future of Syria, as if we figured out everything about the future of Iraq or in, in Turkey or in Palestine slash Israel or in Lebanon. I mean, before people start to worry about dividing Syria, I think the Syrian refugees divided Europe and like the Schengen doesn't exist anymore. And uh, the, after Berlin Wall, we have a lot of walls from the same stone. I think the right wing is taking over everywhere. Maybe the Syrian also was part of. Um, the future of Britain when they after the Brexit, because as far as I know, there's some few friends um, who've been telling me that uh, at least one of them who has like uh, the right to vote, he voted for as no because this is the first time he has the right to say no to something, and <laughs> apparently it was uh, he made the same mistake for well, maybe his British friend now some of his British friends not happy with that decision. He voted to leave the EU because at least he, he, he could vote. Because yeah, because <laughs> that's he's just like. <laughs> He just could use the no. So the future is, uh, it's, what is future? I mean, it's, I don't want to philosophize the whole thing, but while speaking right now, something is happening in Mosul, something is happening now in Aleppo, and maybe that will make a big shift. And before, before 2011, before 2010, all the think tanks in the West, everybody was thinking like, yeah, because of fundamentalism, because of poverty, because of dictatorship, because of literacy, nothing will change in the Middle East. Because of all the things being mentioned above, everything has changed in the Middle East and nobody like saw it coming. Well, yes, but no, there is a point here. I think it's fair to press you on this because the professor is telling us from his expertise that he thinks any solution long term is going to involve power sharing. And yet uh, you know, the opposition to President Assad has been absolutely steadfast in saying it will not deal with him. So where does that go? This is the thing, like when, you, when you're saying Assad and you're saying opposition, you're, um, behind Assad and opposition, you have to talk also to the other major players. Assad now, I, I think, is just a puppet, like in, uh, in the show. I mean, like, I, I think his closest friends will ready to get rid of him as soon as they figure out exactly what is this future will be look like and what that guarantees some of their interests. I don't think Assad now is the biggest problem uh, that we have in Syria because now it's just the vitrine that we can see, like, some of the influence that uh, from different players on the ground and uh, also like from the side of the opposition I mean like if you have to talk to the opposition you have to go to London or Paris or, or DC if you have to talk to the regime you have to go to Moscow and uh, even like you know some uh, news coming from the presidential palace being caught like they've been quoting novelty and the Sputnik news agency in Russia I mean like they just been informed what to do as like anybody else so I think like you know putting Assad and the, and the opposition Syrian opposition like face to face and like simplifying this um, 
what's going on uh, to that extent, I don't think that it's the, um, it's the right thing to, to do. Well, both of you are saying that the foreign powers are going to play a big part in this. Uh, do you agree with that? Sure. Like I, I think the main something different here in, in Syria and Lebanon, it's the country, it exists by itself. Syria has been exist different ways than Lebanon, and that affected in a way or another in the people. The way things started in Syria, it's quite different from the way it started in Lebanon. Like in Syria, we had no problem with Palestinians. I mean by Palestinian, not the Palestinians themselves, but I mean someone from outsider. It was completely inside issue between two Syrian parties. I don't think we can not put completely in consideration the Russians and Iranians exist in the, in the thinking of the future of Syria. I don't think any solution can be done by only the Russian agreement. You need the Iranian agreement, the Iranian improvement. I feel they, they speak less, but they have power more. The Iranians? Yeah. Well, that just gives us some insight into how complicated it is and how difficult the position is of those who are outside of the country trying to think about their country and what's going to happen and what the future might hold. So thank you all very much. Thank you to Basil Salouh, to Yarabeda, to Khaled Alechtia, and earlier from Wissam Zaka, who was in East Aleppo, and before that, our guests in Damascus. And uh, that's it for this edition of News Hour Extra, an unusual one coming from Damascus and Beirut. And I hope, having listened to it, that the, the broad contours of this Syrian conflict are a little clearer. Uh, but from all of us here in Beirut, thanks for listening. And goodbye.